It's very related to what I mean. Yeah, he even said that there's no sexual relation that is mediated by the other of the symbolic. In other words, mm -hmm. there's no real genuine relation. There's always an image. There's always a ghost haunting both people and enabling the sexual intercourse to happen. Mm -hmm. But uh, Tom, to, to complete my point, uh, you know, stage one, the, the original perspective that perhaps I used to have and some people like, I don't know, when I was younger and shit was that, oh, there, there's authentic, authenticity and like knowing your shit and there's fakeness. It's appearing that you know your shit. But the appearance of knowing your shit is in itself like part of the point uh, and if we look outside doesn't that uh, yield great value and great creativity and so to look at the cynic to look at the fake to look at the one who is just appearance not as oh you're not good enough you're not pure enough i'm the pure enough because i know actually the expertise of the thing uh isn't that a little bit like I don't think that's that's the right way to think about it. Uh, what the way that I'm thinking is that even those appearances are in themselves in themselves creative, and to not look at the creative potential of those appearances is to forfeit like half of the half of the game. Is to like is to not deal with it half of the half of the pieces in the board uh, because it, it it's so powerful and so creative and it has such a deep impact on phenomenological reality of appearances even if it's bullshit like you know look at a, at a religion for example uh forgive me if i'm butchering the example but the tantric master knows that sutra is bullshit he knows that the secret that all the sutrics uh at this level look up and it's like oh they have a secret the tantric master knows that the secret is that there is no secret but the appearance of secrecy is in itself extremely effective that's why you dress in white robes. That's why you have uh, all these beautiful, think about St. Peter's Basilica, right? This exquisite architecture. Mm -hmm. But that is there to suggest that, oh no, we're holding a tremendous secret. We have the keys of St. Peter. And yeah. what, are, what do the keys lead to? Nothing, literal symbolic nothingness, like the fucking breakage in the real. What happens after death? We don't know. There's nothing, but we, we don't know. That, and that break, precisely at that point of breakage of nothingness, is the exact place where you can create a container that's uh, outwards facing, emits the image of secrecy, emits the appearance of secrecy. All cults have this. Uh, every, everybody wants to go into the inner circle to know what the inner circle masters know. But in the inner circle, it's like, yeah, there's no secret. There's just appearance. That's it. But the appearance is the whole thing. But my question remains, Daniel, what does enable that you to do? You know, what, what is that enabling you to do? That recognition, that perspective. What is better with that? For me, mm, well, I'm still kind of figuring it out, to be honest. This is this is kind of a new insight, but um, just just being more Are realistic. Are you more playful with the is phenomena it, yeah, it more... in your life, or what is it? Yeah, I, yeah more creative, more playful, more free. It's like, I, I don't, you know, it, it liberates one from having to take everything so seriously. And like, as if these rules and regulations were actually real, but they're not really real. Like you, you go with them because they okay. But we do know that they're all a fabrication out of nothing. It's like fucking banks printing money. It's the exact same thing uh, with fractional reserve and being able to lend most of the money you actually have and printing it. Uh, it, le it lends you a, a certain 
leeway for creativity. That's all I'm saying. How and where and why still trying to digest. Well, the nothingness state is the most creative state in, in, in a way. Exactly. Yeah. Because, but, uh, but it's also the openness state, like nothingness openness would be the formula. Because mm-hmm. it's, oh, it's not just a mere nothing. It's nothing that's open and expressing itself. So it's like what uh, Meister Eckhart says that, you know, the God, uh, you know, um, the Godhead expresses itself without ever leaving the Godhead, or you know, it it it, it creates the multiple worlds, but it never leaves the itself. What's interesting to think about nothingness is that it doesn't exist because it's nothing. All, all the only thing that actually exists is not nothing. Yeah. We are the denial of nothing always. I I, I I was listening to people who who have done very serious meditation retreats for many, many years. And they, they get to this state called the nothingness state. And at that point, it's, it's an actual uh, state. And it's not the last, it's not the end of the story, but it's the, it's kind of a, the before it's before you go to the end of the story, because if you're in the nothingness state, you'll just sit there and you could die perfectly happy, happily, all mm-hmm. of the, everything else is gone. So what happens at that is the person has to drag this person out of the nothingness state and into the world again, because that state is so uh, incredibly blissful and, and uh, that you could just die and it would be no problem. Let me be the devil's advocate here, Andrew. I'm not, I'm not taking away from the experience of those people uh, and, and, and obviously of this tradition, because I do get that there are certain states that will leave you in certain, well, that have certain effects and shit. But I'm just doing spiritual gossip of course i don't know anything about this but but my point is is very simple like you said something like nothingness is an actual state these two are well, that's like, the paradox yeah yeah and and so my reply to that is that nothingness does not exist yet its non-existence is everywhere and we what are what, like, what people who have that experience say there's nothing there's nothing there's no thing there's absolutely no thing. There's no things. The thingness of reality is a total fabrication, a total lie. There's no things. You know, that's, what, Andrew, the, that's, that's what the that's usual the, that's that's what the statement would be in after the that, state, that. You don't state. think that. What? When you're in that state, you uh, either are not thinking that because you're in the state or you're thinking that then you're not in that state. So the only point that you can reflect about is you're not in that state and then it's an illusion. So that's, that's the, the, the basic problem. You can't be in the state of nothingness and think, ah, oh, that's nothingness. That's a because then you're something. That, it doesn't well, work. Well, no, like you that. just don't think that there's any things. This is not a thing. This is not a thing that's speaking. You think retroactively, I guess, is what Andrew is trying to say. Like after the state or or someone. Yeah, else, but then you, it's you, get you know, it's a, then that. it's con- conception. Then it's an image. But the conception is the not a thing. thing either. There's, it's like, it's like all of the, all of the, what, what do they call them? The klipots are, 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 are boundaries around reality that we create, and they can be concepts. They can be, you know, um, all of these boundaries are are, are 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 shown to be utterly transparent. They're they're not real boundaries. They're they're just there's no inside and outside. It's the same story of as Moses and the burning bush. You know, he you know he says, "Okay, yes, the, the, you can't mean, see the backside of God." When you're in that of state of nothingness, and then you think this it is, then you already left that state. Maybe I think, maybe I think you haven't. Maybe something is expressing itself, and you haven't left that state. But it's not. It's nothing. It's no, not but you. you can't not, think this is nothing nothingness. Isn't. And be in the state of nothingness. Nothing isn't. And so that, let me add something here. It's the same thing that the same relationship between death. Nobody alive has ever experienced death, period. And this is tremendous because death 
though it's something well, absolutely... I disagree, but but anyway. Deaths, but we're still alive. <laughs> not the ultimate death. No, I think alive. I think in Zen they say if when you die, before you die, when you do die, you don't die. The people experience actual death before 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 physical death. Death of the Yet entire physical cycle. I, I know that Bard and I know all these guys are just going to say, "Oh, there's only death," but that doesn't make sense. And death is enlightenment, but that makes no sense whatsoever. There is no death is not enlightenment. I mean, it can't. I mean, it could be, but it, but. What I want to—it's—I'm making a smaller point here, um, which is for, for the 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 death that we die at the end of our lives, and after which we don't come back. Let's talk about that death. Um, nobody in the realm of the living has experienced that period. Nobody who's alive in our generation has experienced that, and in, this is an absolute truth. Well, have you read stories of like the, the people when they you know have near death experiences? But they come back. My, my point was like that when you're dying, you don't come back for for forever right it's not like you die for 30 seconds yeah or six minutes well I'm the not... person dies and the body dies and the whatever happens person. afterwards we do not mm-hmm. know because nobody who has lived has ever experienced that yet but have you read the but tibetan let, let book me, of the dead i mean come on now let me make my point People know. like the whole but the whole point of um death doesn't exist therefore it's a fiction like Lacan says it's of the According domain of the Zizek faith. According to Zizek and Lacan, but maybe that's because they haven't had, you know. Let me finish my point. Okay, The whole sorry, thing is I'm that the, the non-existence of, of death has tremendous impact on, on what exists. Like, it, it doesn't exist. It's not there. Like, where is it? Show me. Where is it? It's not. But its non-existence is everywhere. So it's an apophatic sort of formulation of an absoluteness. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the absolute that isn't there. Um, and I feel like the same relationship, the same thing that I'm saying about death could be applied to nothingness itself. It's like, it's not there, yet it's not being is everywhere, which yeah. is really paradoxical. It's always uh, paradoxical at that point. You can't go, you know, it's always, that's just... Precisely. Just, and you stop parad- at the paradox and you can't go any further in terms of uh, in conceptual uh, discussion because precisely. And, and it just exactly, ends in a paradox. And exactly because it is the crisis of the real, right? It's It's the point at which, sorry, not the real, because... It's a paradox that means that it's the crisis of our symbolic order. Like our discourses reach a point, like they're, imagine them as a dome around us. They get to a point and it breaks, like there's a crack there. Like what the fuck, like language cannot contend with death. And it's precisely at that point of crisis that you create fictions. Like the keys of St. Peter guard precisely that lack, that hole. And that's why it's of the domain of the faith, because it's mediating death. The impossible problem of death is mediated by religion, and the impossible problem, for example, of the other is mediated by money. Like, the other is also an impossibility, right? I never know what you guys are thinking, and, like, if I go outside in society, it could be that someone wants to kill me or wants to steal shit from me, or how do I deal with, with violence? Not necessarily in society right now, but, you know, in, in the broader sense, from, from also from an evolutionary perspective. And so how do you solve that impossibility? You create another religious thing called money. My view is that everything religious mediates the connection, really got it. It, it. it mediates this connection with the impossibilities of language. Wherever there's a crisis in language, that like, what the fuck do we do with this? We put something in, in its stead. Uh, I mean, we move uh, into the symbolic when we, when we don't, when, you know, when we, when we can't, when we are yeah. done with the propositional. Is that what you mean? I think that within the cracks of the symbolic emerges another order like this is precisely the place where the symbolic gets to be born the limits of the symbolic are precisely the origins of the symbolic of the new symbolic 
the end of a paradigm is the birth of a new one. Uh, the limits of language are precisely where religion or faith emerges, which is another type of mm-hmm. form of language, another domain of language. Yeah. And so well, it's interesting in the process of, you know, in the meditation process, at first you would get the view. In other words, you'd study intellectually and you'd get the view about what, you know, and then, and then after you've done that process, you work more with symbols and, and, and emo- emotions and, 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 you know, textures of reality. You know, they call them the rasas in, in Hindu. You work with the rasas, which are feeling tone, uh, um, you, you know, which, which are, are, are transrational, basically. Um, they're, they're completely transrational. Um, and then, and then, and then, and then you, and then in, in the next stage, you, you dissolve all that. Um, exactly. And it's so fucking, see here again, the non-existence of nothing makes itself extremely present. Like you get to a limit where, it's a limit. It's a, a clear limit of what one human can experience via meditation, via symbols, via studying the affects intensely. And you do it to such a point of excess. Yes. Such yeah, a limit you do, yeah. That it's... you get to a point of like, holy shit, like there's a place here that I cannot go. Yeah. Like there's a limit. And that's precisely the place. That's where that's the limit of God, basically. I mean, in, in like, for example, you know, in, in deity yoga, of language. You, you, yeah, I'm interrupting you again. Sorry, go finish. No, yeah, okay. So very quickly to finish is like that. That precisely that uh, you go to an excess of study, to an excess of all of that, and then you get to a certain limit where you encounter, uh, or rather, like you know the limit, and the limit is by definition bordering nothingness, uh, or it interacts with something that does not exist, yet whose non-existence is precisely the crowning capstone of everything symbolic underneath that which is just appearance but it's the most real appearance of all and so that's that was originally my point about go to the excess uh, uh know it and by meeting nothing as at the edge of excess you can transfigure everything that was previous and you can see well, it as appearance but also as extreme reality in deity yoga you know, which is which is a practice that you do after you've done the preliminary practices in, in tantric Buddhism. In deity yoga, you visualize yourself as the deity. You know, to the point where if you would look in a mirror, you would see the deity and not yourself. Like you, you'd be surprised to see yourself there because you've changed your entire psychosomatic apparatus. You know, to to be uh, you know. A this deity is called with, being delusional. The, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> But but it's but uh, but it's but it's but it's but it's and then and then so you you visualize yourself with with the weapon on one hand and with the um with 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 the um <laughs> with, with the nectar uh, 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 in in the other hand and you're wearing you're wearing you know you're you're standing on a human corpse and, and you're and you're sitting on a tiger skin on a lotus and all this stuff right that you visualize um you know and they're all and each visualization has very specific symbolic import and, and meaning and, and it can go you know and you do that for for a long time which indeed in, in normal life would, would would be delusional but but actually uh, actually 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 you, you do that as 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 daniel says to the extreme i love that and that and when once once you've done that then then you can start studying uh maha yoga and at yoga and the other kinds of yogas the dream yoga and the sexual yoga and the, whatever but but first but first you have first you start you know with first in sutra you start with analyzing the the you know you start with 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 philosophy and analyzing the you know the, and then you move on to hey there he is. hey 
Hello, Alexander. Hello there. How are you? We're good. We're good. We're just having a conversation about appearance as appearance. Yes. And, and, and I was talking about power. deity yoga and, and uh, relating it to what Daniel was saying about, um, about how you have to take the illusion to the utmost extreme or something like that. Well, I think I'm you know something about extremes, Alexander. Mm-hmm. About extremes? Yes. yes. Well, I, I've written about the infinite now, which is certainly concerned about extremes. So the idea is that we need, um, we need a philosophy of the most extreme states that we experience. And the infinite now, I think, because of its contradiction, it's a good term for that. So think of it like, like an experience that's so ecstatic that, that you absolutely, you're absolutely thrilled to be there, but you also realize if you would have to stay, they would be horrible. That'd be the ultimate extreme. That'd be the ultimate mm-hmm. extreme. Sense. And of course, you can reverse that. There's, of course, also the ultimate trauma in that sense. If, if you could even imagine uh, what the ultimate trauma would be like, it'd be the opposite of the infinite now. It would, it would be a state you don't want to be in, but you have to be in it forever and you're not getting out. Those are imagined states, images? Uh, th- these are philosophical concepts. So, so you, can, you, you can apply them on yourself. I mean, a lot of people, when they read about it, they said, yeah, when my child was born, I saw my child being born, that was the infinite now. Some people have a psychedelic experience or a sexual experience that they would say that's the most extreme ecstatic state I've ever been in. Mm-hmm, and then, mm-hmm. of course, you can also reverse that and say the most horrible experience you could imagine. And we, yeah. can't, we, cannot, we cannot imagine things like evil if we don't actually imagine those emotional states, what it would be like to be in. Yes, the absolute that... trauma. Absolute trauma. encompassing trauma. Yeah, I mean, obviously people who have psychiatric diseases and, and go and kill themselves. What the, what the report before is that actually when they killed themselves, when they were strong enough to kill themselves. And actually before that, it was more horrible. It's always an experience before that that was so fucking horrible and they believed they could never get out of it. And once they got out of it and got strong enough, then they go and kill themselves. So actually suicide is not the most, it's not the, it's, it's not the absolute trauma. The absolute trauma would be in a state where you cannot even commit suicide. Imagine what that'd be like. Well, it's quite the opposite of infinite, the infinite now. The yeah, infinite but, but they're closely related. Closely related because we actually see them as temporal states. So That's what op- often happens to people when they have uh, a spiritual emergency. They go into extreme bliss and then they go de- right down to hell. They just experience hell right afterwards. I think, when, I think when we treat addiction, this is absolutely key. We don't really talk about addiction in itself. We don't really talk about what kind of state an addicted person is addicted to. And that's why addiction mm-hmm. should be a general term. We shouldn't discuss alcohol abuse or drug abuse or sex abuse, whatever. What, what it always turns out is that the addictive personality uh, had probably some use for that personality in the past. For example, you can handle monotony a lot better than other people can if you have addictive personality. And so the, the, there's a compulsion to repeat always involved in addiction. And I think addiction should be treated generally. It should just be treated like something we talk about, like wh- wh- where does your addictive personality come through? Wh- wh- when is that being exposed? Mm-hmm. And treat, addic- treat addiction as a whole rather than treating specific addictions. Well, to experience the infinite now and infinite bliss is a horror in itself, actually, you know? Exactly. If you would have to yeah. stay in the infinite now, no matter how ecstatic and wonderful it be, it would be horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even uh, like to, to deal with the ramifications. Well, you're not even in the infinite now unless it has that nature to it. You're not in a completely ecstatic state unless it would be horrible to have to stay in it. But you say state, you come when you come back from it, right? Yeah, when you come down from it. That's horrible. No, no, it's not horrible to come down. What's horrible is to not... No, but it's to integrate that. It's, you know... Exactly. To integrate is to memorize. So 
The trick is this. For example, if you have a very strong static experience, if you can just memorize it strongly enough, you never have to experience it again. You can live with it the rest of your life. If you share the infinite now with somebody, this is, this is very sacred space theology in a way. But if you share the infinite now with somebody, it, it, it has the nature that you can just look that person in the eye whenever you walk into a room with 20 other people around and decide that person is the one you know really well. Because the, the nature of having a truly ecstatic experience together is that you then have a shared space in between the two of you that where you know each other. It's just like mm-hmm. you know each other really well. Right. Definitely. The many, the many, the many things we can sort of decouple from the concept of the infinite now when it comes to mystical experience, ecstatic experience, and things like that. Mm-hmm. I think it's also good for addiction treatment to actually speak about these things because to, to recognize that there are ecstatic states that people have experienced and they're addicted to get back to them, which is called kick seeking, means they cannot memorize the experience well enough to stay away from it. So they have to repeat the experience again and again instead of just being able to memorize it. Person, so was, people yeah, who can memorize the automatics. Yeah, yeah. me, the memory at that point, the, the actual experience and the memory of it later, they, they kind of converge. Yes, that's why coming down is an art. You can really learn how to enjoy. And of course, it, to its nature is that if I learn how to come down from an ecstatic experience, I can return to that experience again. Allow myself to do that because I don't have to worry about it because I know how to come down. Coming yeah. down should be an art. should be declared yeah. an art. And f- to be able to do mystical and ecstatic experiences, you must learn first how to come down, yeah. which is the key to integration. Yes. And that's why you have to learn all of these different states. Like you have to, you have to explore, you know, in Tantra, Tantra, you explore all the different kinds of psychophysical states. So when you find yourself in one, you know what to do, right? Yeah. So this is what intention is about. Intention is about trying out, checking your memorization. What's closely related to memorization is distancing. So in general, for people who have psych- psychiatric diseases, they lack distancing capacity. This mm-hmm. is why yeah. dissociative drugs like ketamine are often very useful when trying to treat them. But the problem is they cannot dissociate themselves. So the feeling they have at the moment is the truth about reality itself. Once you distance yourself, you can, you can say that, yeah, that I feel a certain thing right now. I felt something else yesterday. I will probably feel something entirely different tomorrow. It doesn't matter what I feel right now. I'm looking at the experience from the outside in. My, my ego is here. The experience is there. They're not intertwined. And therefore, you can distance yourself from things. And if you can distance yourself from things, you can also memorize. Because memories, I'm not there now, but I was there in the past. Because I can recall what it was like to be in the past. I know now what it's like to be there. I mean, Alexander, we just talked about, you know, the dialectics, you know, uh, um, and, and, you know, you have to, I think like every true spiritual tradition, you know, enables both, you know, the confronting, you know, the infinite now, but also like the sacrifice to not to get too attached to it. You know, that it's, it's a stepwise process. The more you can, you know, Uh, you know, lose the attachment, the more you can embrace the infinite now. And so it's a self, it's a process by which you, you know, protect yourself from. Um, yeah. And you don't go, ch- if you go chasing after those experiences, then, then they, 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 they flee from you. They, they're, well, you, <laughs> you become, you, you become a kick seeker. Yeah. And the kick yeah, seeker, seeker, is, yeah. kick seeker is not grounded. So this is why yeah. intention is so important here. Uh, if you're grounded, if you know why you're doing something, if, yeah. if you know why you make a visit in the certain sacred space, and it's meaningful to you, and you're not doing the kick-seeking part, 
you, you want to share, you want to have a possibly share an ecstatic experience because it adds meaning to your entire life. So there's something <laughs> leading up to that experience. There's also a memorization, a coming down beauty to it. You might not even have to visit it again. That's the real sacred space. But that whole process means you need to be grounded. So ironically, you get attached to things because you're not grounded. But if you're grounded, you do not get attached to them. So grounding, which we call intention, Intention is absolutely essential to go into the mode of ecstatic experience. And attention as well, right? What? I mean, I would call it attention. I think attention is the, is the whole, is the whole in, trick in, of all this. Intention is what I'm talking about here. Mm-hmm. Intention. So why am I doing this? And of course, if you have a woman, for example, we're men here. If you have a woman, she's pregnant. You have nine months of preparation, which is a beautiful intention, uh, preparing intention for the birth of the child, for example. You say, Alexander, that like the preparation of going up to and then coming down, those are of the symbolic order or, and, and the actual experience of, say, the infinite now is an impossibility, is sort of a crack within that symbolic order, something that cannot be explained, but being experienced and then properly integrated within the symbolic order, then yes, it becomes sort of memorizable, you have that distance, and then you have this reified space uh, within your symbolic order that you can go back to and you can manage and you've changed a little bit of the symbols precisely because you've known or rather engaged with that impossibility. That impossibility could be an infinite now, an excited, like a psychedelic experience, but it could also be sort of excess of, of any kind, uh, which is in, in, in a way very dialectical, right? It's like you bring something to such an extent that it cracks. After that crack, there's an impossibility. And then from the digestion of that impossibility comes back and reevaluates, it transfigures the place, the original order that it yeah, made it emerge. I, I would actually speak of three orders here. I would speak of symbolic order, which is how we put a name on something, the infinite now. We put a name on something, intention. We put a name on something, coming down. We put a name on something, attachment, things like that. That's mm-hmm. symbolic order. The imaginary order is the memory of the experience or the fantasy about the experience prior to it. Like you fantasize what it would like to be in such an ecstatic state. You might even have to fantasize about would it be like to be in a horrible state? You, you, might, you might go into psychiatric disease and realize what's happening to you and you see the ultimate horror in front of you. So you, there's an intention there as well because you're going to approach absolute trauma. Will you even survive it? Would you like to kill yourself? You know, things like that can, can be part of this too. So that's, that's symbolic order and imaginary order. Imagine how you imagine what it's like to have the experience or how you imagine how you remember it. The imaginary order is also important. The, but, but the ecstatic experience itself, all the trauma, have the nature, they're, they're real. They're ultimately real. They're, they're, they're real. They're, they're the third order, they're the real. Once you're in the ecstatic experience, you cannot put words to it, but you can also not describe it in any other way to somebody else. Artists sometimes try, and I think art is probably the best way we possibly could imagine to try to communicate what we experience in the real when we're there. But, but it, it, it's the, the, real, the real of the experience, like the, the enormous attention, like this is life at its most intense, good or bad, that's its most intense. That's what we call the infinite now. Yeah, art is precisely that translation. I yeah, so, because art, art is trying to communicate the imaginary order. It's the only way we know how to communicate the imaginary And that's order. why there's no art without excess, meaning excess oh. as the place from which crack in the symbolic order and then on the imaginary order can make way for the real. So without that excess, there's no crack, there's no real, there's no work. The classic case of a picture speaks more than a thousand words. Mm-hmm. That's when the imaginary order communicates better than the symbolic order does. Would you say that? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was just before you came in, Alexander, I was talking about deity yoga 
And what you do in deity yoga is that you, you, can, you can do it in two ways. You can, you can do it in an imaginary way, but you can also dress up, you know, and what, what they do is, is that you would, you, 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 there's, there's an intricate system of symbols, which have a, each, each of these symbols has a specific meaning. Uh, and, and for years and years, you have visualized yourself as the deity, which would be mental illness, you know, as Tom uh, pointed out in, in ordinary circumstances. So you do that yeah, for years delusional. and years and years. You do that, you're delusional or whatever, but to the point where you don't recognize your own psychosomatic, you know, you, you, you transform the entire psychosomatic internal world. Well, first, you could do it by dressing up and, and doing all kinds of weird stuff. And so, um, so, so in Didi Yoga, the, the, the point is to take all these things to the extreme until they collapse, sort of, and then you get to the real. And I, it, yeah, uh, there's a point to that, because when you work with trauma, traumatology, you discover very early on, the problem with the human brain is that when you repeat something, it finds it more real. Mm-hmm. Okay, because yeah. normally we look for novelty or we look for ambivalence, or we look for anything that distracts us. You know, we look for, a, a blue sky's blue. We register the blue instantly. We don't need to register it again and again and again. But if a, fl- if a plane flies through the sky, something happens, we register that round the blue sky, because there's something new happened, novelty. So the novelties are registered because ambivalence is something we prioritize. We have lived in wild nature as humans for almost our entire history. And that today we live in wild culture. So, so we have to know what's going on around us because there are dangers lurking everywhere. So we prioritize that. But actually, when we just repeat the same thing, going to loop, repeat the same thing, it goes back and back and back and comes well, it's back. It's changing up. the whole habit field, basically. No, I mean, no but when we repeat the same thing, we get a strange mm-hmm. sense that it's more important, that, that it's mm-hmm. more real. And this is the problem with trauma, is that trauma is by nature compulsive, repetitive, uh, compulsive repetitive disorder, right? So that's what trauma is. And precisely because of that, even if you're happy most of your life and suddenly you go into a trauma because you're happy most of your life, then you see novelty all the time and ambivalences, but suddenly you're in a traumatic state where you cannot see anything but your own loop. Then you believe that's more real. And that's why it's so dangerous for people to go into trauma. And that's how psychiatric disease deals with people who just repeat the same thing over and over and over again. And because they repeat it, they think it's the ultimate truth. And even if they find themselves crazy, they believe they're more sane than the surrounding world is because the surrounding world is not repeating itself. That is one of the tragedies of the mind. The tragedies of the mind is that our compulsion to repeat it's not only a compulsion to repeat itself, it's also a compulsion to believe that's more true. I was saying that you change what you pay attention to, like you change, you know, and, and that's, that's the sacrificial act. Like usually you pay attention to your usual habit field. And when you do yeah. these other practices, you, you, you create an entirely different habit field. Um, uh, and, and so you change what you, attention, you pay attention to, to the mundane and the gross yeah. and the stupid into something sublime and ridiculous. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a bit like crazy wisdom works the same way. Crazy yeah. wisdom forces you not to mimic somebody, right? The same thing here. You're forced not to go back into the compulsive, repetitive thinking by, by doing exactly these practices. That's why they work. So what's the difference then from, you know, that to say, you know, the autopoiesis of the mind, you know, which we're all subjected to, you know, that we are like within our same circles, you know, repeating the same processes and it's the same things that we do and things. well you know me i don't i don't use the word autopoiesis at all because i don't think anything is auto ever i call it trebo poiesis i think it's collectively produced 
So there, there is no solid auto anywhere in any of these processes. The auto is always constructed afterwards to make sense of a chaos. So the way we create order in chaos is by clinging to a self that we produce afterwards and, and project onto something. Yeah, but in a way, we, are, we are embedded in certain processes that are like kind of self-repeating itself. That's yeah. the basic idea, isn't it? But they're collective and they're also making collective byproducts. So there's no auto poesis involved. The, we're not the producing way. the self. We're not producing the self in a rank. Actually, the self we're producing when we have a problem we haven't solved, and we have to keep that problem for later and solve it later. That's when we produce a stronger sense of self. Yeah, that's the strongest sense of self. If you look, so at you don't it, repeat your behaviors <clears throat> from a day-to-day -day basis. No, I don't. I don't repeat my behaviors day-to-day -day basis to produce a self. I have, a weak, I have a weak sense of self when I, when I go into repetitive modes. But I found the repetitive modes to be more real in the sense that I have a clear idea of the surroundings, meaning that I have a clear idea that the world is crazy. The world is mad. The world is nothing but an endless repetition. I can't get out of it. That's, that's a form of, is. But that's a form of affirmative nihilism from your behalf, which, which is totally true, which is a little bit what I was referring to a while ago. So like you were saying, I, the way that I understand tribal poesis is as... Sorry, just a moment. Sorry about that. Tribal poesis are habits of discurs discursification, right? It's like um, they're the compulsively repetitive ways that we have to collectively go into the real, bring it back, inscribe it into the symbolic order. Now, these, these ways that we uh, repeat these things that we bring back from the real, they are, I would say, Appearances, they're not the real. They're uh, memorizations. They're distant from, from what has happened. And it is precisely in repeating that appearance that we generate a feeling of safety, of... Uh, think about in capitalism, in, in, the, in, in, the, in the marketplace of images. Uh, the image of something is oftentimes, or most of the time, even more valuable than, its, um, than the thing in itself. So the image of, of going into the real and, and coming back somehow feels like it's, it's, it's our compulsive repetition of these images to create a sense of the real, uh, to create something sutric, to create these habits of, of relation between each other. Um, that The relationship between that and truth, I would say, is, is it, it enters the realm of fiction. Well, I think there's a difference between compulsive repetition and repetition. We repeat mm -hmm. all the time. We go back to the same loops all the time. But we also are open to novelty and ambivalence. That's how the brain mm -hmm. operates. Compulsive repetition means the brain closes in on itself. It doesn't take in. It's sensory overloaded most of the time. Mo most of modern psychiatric disease starts with sensory overload syndrome. It's people who cannot comprehend and take in the sensory overload they already, they already have. So they just add more and more information without being able to integrate it. And that's why psychosis is. So mm -hmm. that's what happens. Uh, mm -hmm. I would say that it's important here. The compulsive repetitive is like, it's nothing but the repetition. And the problem then is that the brain is programmed to think it's more real and more important than any novelty could possibly be. So it just reinforces itself. That's why psychiatric disease is so damn tragic. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, uh, somebody told sense. me one of the roots of the word re religion was repetition. <laughs> There's one of the, I don't know, etymologies of it. So the, 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 that's changing the habit field of negative repetition into the habit field of, of, of repeating things consciously or with awareness and, and attention. Finding I, back, I think, is the, you know, what you're referring mm -hmm. to. What's that? 
binding back or something Ligio binding back but every, i think like everybody yeah. has their favorite pet peeve about what religious uh, uh, the word religion comes from anyhow yeah. it's just one i heard somewhere i don't know if it's, it's true. called religio it's french latin so it's like late latin so it's medieval latin so ligio connects religio reconnects would be the most reconnect yeah yeah is, reconnect. which is that's when you you re repeat going back you go back you reconnect oh you you reconnect with your community it's definitely yeah. refer referring to congrezio so that's religio de congrezio so that that's what it refers to and that's the real impact of religious fictions is that it binds communities together even though the images in and of themselves aren't real but they are immediately pre-real or they veil the crack in the symbolic order from which the real can appear that's why Lacan says that death is of the domain of the faith because there's no way that we can talk about death within language I mean we can talk but like it, it's it's a mediated experience and so to, that's precisely why we build all these trappings and these veils and these beautiful churches, etc., to have some sort of structure there where precisely at the death of our symbolic order or at its limits of what we can talk about at its death is, is the place where it can dialectically be born again as another uh, form of symbolic order. So it gets, it comes, it goes there, it dies, and then it comes back in the, in the form of, different symbols, symbols of faith, symbols that reconnect people precisely because it has died, which is, which, which just makes the image of the dead God on the cross even more of a coincidence, right? It literally symbolizes limit and we worship that limit and we structure our, our languages and our religions, religions based on that limit. And so the way that that structures our symbolic order, the way that that seeps down in the form of images and the way that we basically are doing commerce of images all the time and of appearances, to me is like deeply related to these crux points, to these crosses, like these, these, these points in fucking reality where it's like, okay, that's the hole. That's the black hole. Yeah, it's mythos. Yeah. And we live in an incredibly mythical society. Mythos is the dominant mode. We're terrified of pathos and we avoid logos. Yeah. So we are in the mythical realm right now, very much so. That's why we consider our society to be feminine, even hysterically feminine. Because that's, that's, that's what mythical realm is. Cool. Yeah. So have you discussed your different infinite nows that you've experienced? Or do you do like me? You definitely, definitely keep them in the private and never talk about them in public? No, no, you don't talk about them. No, no you don't so talk how, about how do you get thing. into uh, infinite bliss, Alexander? I, I don't talk. To I don't talk about it in public. Huh? I don't talk about it in public. This no, is too public. You You're recording this. You're going to put this out somewhere. I just masturbate. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, then we're going. See, we we end. We start the conversation really dirty, and then we start, and then we go into metaphysics, and then we we end with we sort of move into the, the dirty part again towards the end. That's yeah. how me and Tom have been doing it. Oh God. <laughs> Oh God! You're gonna bring out the party monster, me? You're gonna bring out the seriously sacred guy here? It's just like <laughs> the party monster, of course. Yeah, uh, different towards the end because we're at that point in the conversation. Okay, uh, okay. <laughs> so just kill it off on a Friday night. No, I stopped doing that some 30 years ago. Not that I minded. Uh, I definitely saw the point, but um, I think it's very much a private and sacred space for me these days, and uh, it has to be meaningful. I, I I don't mind waking up on a Monday, having a cup of coffee, and going to work. 
I love my sobriety. And yeah. loving you on sobriety keeps you safe from all these things. That's exactly why you can go into these ecstatic states and you don't have to worry about them. You'll come back again. Three days later, you're fine. You know, and, and actually there's a point where you really want to come down and get out of it. So no matter how you pursue that, it doesn't matter. You can do it, of course, the meditation, contemplation, psychedelic sex. There's so many ways you can do it. But no matter how you do that, you do that because you have a really good intention these days. So otherwise you just, let's cancel it. Right. The intention didn't really work or the intention wasn't strong enough or the intention didn't make it a priority right now on my calendar. And, and you know, it's, it's just, and that's a good thing when you cancel things because the intention isn't really there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was just mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm supposed to do this because I haven't done this for 17 weeks or whatever. Well, it could be 18 weeks. That's okay. Sobriety is fine. <laughs> just being grounded and living a normal everyday life in between is beautiful. There's no problem with that. <laughs> And totally that's exactly, agree. that's exactly, that's exactly what we need to teach these things. I think addiction is going to be so prevalent in our culture. Facebook and these companies even tried to turn us into addicts. Gaming companies try to turn us into addicts. Mm -hmm. Gambling companies try to turn us into addicts. Everywhere we go, people try to turn us into addicts, meaning that we're totally helplessly uh, tied to a certain consumption or something that they own, right? So the, the way to treat that is to start look at these things properly and have a proper philosophical or scientific approach to these things. That's what I want to do. That's why you launched the concept of the infinite now, the synthesis book. I think you can't talk about religion without talking about religious ecstasy or talk about mysticism and talk about mystical experience and things like that. They're, 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 they're central to the whole idea. Why else having a religion to begin with? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Protestant thing that Daniel was talking about is, is to look at religion as some way just to like pick yourself up by the bootstraps <laughs> or whatever, but 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 it's about ecstasy. I mean, yeah, and without it's about, it, it's about well, exactly without it, you can't do traumatology. You cannot deal with the horrors of being in traumatic states if you don't explore the ecstatic states. You you can't say that pick you up by the bootstraps, go to boring churches, sing boring songs, have no colors anywhere, and, and pretend you're somehow gnostically superior to others. That's Protestantism for you. It's boring like hell. That's also what Protestantism also could not deal with mental disease. Because you can't deal with the trauma unless you also deal with the ecstatics. That's a that's an excellent point. Yeah, yeah. really excellent point. Do you need to go to the extremes of trauma and ecstasy in order to uh, live a Monday morning drinking coffee and then having meat and potatoes for lunch in a sober container properly? No, or but you can't be priest unless you do. You cannot treat people who have psychiatric diseases unless you do. When mm -hmm. I worked in Peru, I was there for several years and I was popular, a bit controversial as always. Uh, but I came to the point where actually a female Ayasquera walked up to me one day in Pucalpa and said, you're not a priest. What do you mean? I've done this and this and this. No, you haven't been in hell. So she put me in hell. Okay, I was in a state for seven, eight hours when I wanted nothing but to kill myself as soon as I possibly could. Right? I don't mean that I understand psychiatric disease because of it, because I'm a happy-go-lucky guy who's never been depressed in my life. But at least I can tell a deeply depressed person that I know where you are because I've been there. Right. That's the point. That's why priests go everywhere. Yeah. That's why that, shamans go everywhere. That's why they have to experience absolutely everything, because otherwise they cannot be as human as they must. When they talk to somebody, look them in the eye and say, I know where you are. That's why I would never trust a young therapist. I just wouldn't no. trust them. You can't trust young therapists if they're too young. They they don't know anything. They're just they're just feeding you ready. That reaches so beautiful back to what concept. Daniel said in the beginning of our yeah. conversation, you know, just to go to extremes, to allow yourself to have certain experiences. Yeah, you know? that's right. Yeah. 
Oh, we must, we must. And, and the fact that so many people are addicts in our society, they must not stop the rest of us from going to these states and experience them. Now, I don't wish people to go into trauma because it's horrible, right? But if you want to treat people with trauma, you have to actually go through that. You have to be there yourself, at least to a minimum to understand what they're going through. Otherwise, they will never trust you. Why would they? Very it's true. interesting because the, the addiction and desire, in the beginning of the conversation, we were talking about how desire and how there's an angle uh, through which we can pursue desire to its extreme and therefore learn something about us. But the relationship of that to addiction is that addiction is like this uh, loose, gratuitous, uh, re compulsively repetitional pursuit of desire that is not really about taking it to its excess, uh, but it's about something much less productive and much more binding in a way. Yeah, and it's um, more drive than it is desire. So when you right. go into compulsive states, if you speak Freud and Lacan here, you must speak about drive rather than desire. Desire is often vaguely directed towards a certain object. That object, then when you get it, your desire is already moved somewhere else. But it's always object directed, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas drive is just this empty sort of something. My life must be filled with something. Something must happen. Something must happen, whatever. And of course, if you have- But it's a, a substitute too, right? For the real thing. It's always a substitute. No, there's no, there's no thing involved in drive per se. You won't avoid the thing in drive, if anything. If you, if you mm -hmm. look at Lacan, it's all about going around the thing without, without actually wanting it, without actually desiring it, just going around it. It's like it's just it's just empty compulsive behaviors that fill your fill your schedule. Essentially, you kill time, and that's that's a cynical horrors are what's called the time pass industry today. We've invented something called the time pass industry, which is inventing these games that people just get obsessed with and sit with all day long without learning anything and just killing time. Time pass. It's called the time pass industry. It admits it's evil by its very name. Yeah. They have time pass industry conferences these days. That I think that's cynical, the best yeah. definition of evil, actually. It's just, it's just uh, the, what, what kills your time, what kills yeah. your life energy. That's why we lock up people in prison. We call it killing time to be in prison. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a punishment. It's a punishment. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So yeah. that's drive, and that's pure drive in its, its, in its essence. And I think uh, when nothing else happens to us, we get stuck in there. And that's why people who, who get stuck inside addictions, they always say they couldn't come up with anything better to do. <laughs> that's where they're at. They, they couldn't, they, they, there was just something in them, pulled them back into the loop of doing the same thing all over again, the same sounds, <clears throat> the same smells, the same sense experience and the same endless repetition of emptiness. Right. Because I can imagine the conscious uh, fidelity to one's own desire leading to pursuing it a lot, even to an extreme. And then at that point of extreme, some sort of learning dialectically comes about and, and, and it, at least it, it could be a little bit productive. Whereas, could you see that with drive or is drive just purely blind and, and cannot yield anything? I think if you remove the object, you get there. Yes, and that's exactly what Lacan started his career talking about desire for like 20, 30 years and then moved on to drive. And the older Lacan was the one who's obsessed with drive. Same thing with Freud. The older these men get, the, the deeper they look into the human psyche, the more they move away from desire towards drive itself, pure drive. That's the is that like passion? Like I was saying, the difference between desire and passion. I, I, I was saying that I thought passion is a much more pure, or a much more undiluted 
thing than desire because desire in the Girardian sense always has an object, uh, etc. Right? I don't. I don't use passion that way. Uh, it can be dispassionate or passionate to do something or impassionate or whatever. It doesn't really matter. I more look at the behavior and the cause of the behavior. I use for Sadikvist. I use four categories. Instinct, which is what we inherit with animals, animalistic, right? Drive, which is mechanistic by nature. Desire, which is very human by nature. It's driven by symbolic order and language. That's exactly why humans can have desire, animals cannot. And the fourth one is transcendence, which is forgotten in Lacan, which is why Lacan doesn't have a concept of enlightenment, which is fascinating considering that he, he provokes us to go into psychoanalysis. Well, psychoanalysis must also be able to be successful, right? <laughs> so if you're successful yeah. at your psychoanalysis, that must be you transcended your desire, you transcended your drive. And that's never discussed by Lacan. It's like, he doesn't want to discuss his own successes. But actually, if you think of it, we know that we're still stuck in drive. We're still stuck in desire, but at least on a meta level, we're now aware of it. That's the point with psychoanalysis. Our super egos can become smaller. Our egos can become larger as, as, as a consequence. That's also a consequence of psychoanalysis. So to be successful with psychoanalysis means you go into transcendence. And transcendence merits to be its own category, which is neither drive nor desire, because transcendence does not have the same kind of object that you want. It has a goal it's directed towards. And it doesn't have to find the goal or reach it. It knows, goes in a certain direction. And that's why it is the philosophy of transcendence that leads Musetikus down to the philosophy of exodology. So for example, Lacan cannot describe why the Hebrews or Israelites left Egypt and walked to the promised land. I think that can be explained with transcendence as a drive. I love the idea that, that that's what's missing from the whole psychoanalytic game, because I think that's so true. It's just missing. But then yeah. you move into the realm of religion, which used to be what psychoanalysis, I mean, psychoanalysis kind of replaced religion, didn't it? It is. Yeah, to a certain extent it has. Yes. Uh, and that's good, though, because really good. If you had a really good confession chair in Catholicism, it would be a psychoanalyst chair. Right. But uh, I, I'd say this. To think that Lacan did not give psychoanalysis to people who knew they were about to die is kind of interesting. And if you give psychoanalysis to somebody who's about to die, then you have to talk about transcendence. And nothing else really matters at that state. What survives you is the mm -hmm. only thing that matters. Your heritage is the only thing that matters. You know that you don't care about your own funeral because you're not going to be there. You're dead, right? So that is what's interesting. Uh, it's very Zoroastrian too, but that's what's interesting. That's what I was lacking in Lacan's work is that he didn't have a work properly on transcendence, which I think should be the Western version of the concept of enlightenment in Eastern thinking. Transcendence should, you would replace enlightenment yeah, it, with transcendence. Yeah, I'm very Zoroastrian, but I don't Because it's, it's a more uh, dynamic um, concept or- Yeah, or... I don't think we can be enlightened until we stand in front of death and realize we're there and we're about to die. We can do anything about it. And we're not there yet, none of us here. It's only when we're in that realm, we could even start to imagine what transcendence could possibly be like in its pure form. So I think that's enlightenment. I don't think enlightenment can ever be experienced by somebody who's 24 years old. <laughs> not at all, because they live too much. The libido is too strong. Martito is not awakened yet. And they don't understand that you could die and you both hate to die and also would love to die at the same time. That's the contradiction. I know somebody who got enlightened at 16. You can't sustain it. But, yeah. but, I, but, I, but I, that's another conversation. What did Tom say? No, I mean, just e even if it's a state, you know, you can attain. It's not n nothing that you can sustain for, for a long period of time. That's a good description. Yeah. And that's what the infinite now is, too. 
you cannot sustain it. You can only you can you can only be there temporarily, and you can at best only memorize it. You cannot stay in the infinite now. So no. in that sense, if, if that's if that's an enlightened state in a way, then I agree. That's a good way to use the word enlightenment. I I, I just hate the word. I mean, maybe we should though. do away with that word enlightenment. Maybe like as a yeah. state of society, like 18th yeah, maybe. century, but not as a as a religious spiritual state because it's, it doesn't really make any sense, especially if you have a process view on what's yeah. happening you know mm -hmm. yeah, and in the, in the process view you can have completion not perfection and you can also talk about transcendence rather than enlightenment i agree okay so let's let's lock it down so what we achieved now in this session is fuck enlightenment you know it's like we we said it first <laughs> you know it's just like uh let's do away with that silly silly term hmm? what yeah. do you guys think yeah and, we can have absolute knowledge instead <laughs> Which is Hegel's term. Which is Gnosis, Alexander. Actually, no, no, it's not. It's not. We're, we're going to talk about that next week. You and me, yeah. you and me, and Thomas Amrick and Catalas are going to talk about the difference. You just said absolute knowledge. knowledge. The word Gnosis is no, knowledge. I know. No, but it's wrong, though. That's not at all what Hegel means in German. At all. Yeah. Not at all. Oh, I'm sure. Would you Hegel, say that uh, okay. the will okay, to transcendence, Alexander, is connected to the, uh, you know, the inevitable historical path towards absolute knowledge somehow, or that teleosis, that orientation? No. Movements as is. No. no, I think well to transcend the starts, perhaps knowledge is already achieved. As it knowledge Why are you mentioning my book? <laughs> <laughs> that was a great sales pitch, by the way, from Tom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> great no, book. Called will to you should say, why did you mention you my bestseller? Okay. Well, to transcend and starts with absolute knowledge. So absolute knowledge is just realizing the end of knowledge, the limit of knowledge. That's Tegel's point. It's not that you know everything, obviously right. not. Right. Absolute knowledge, this is how far knowledge can take you. And because it is processual, and mm -hmm. because both what it has a knowledge about changes, and the knowledge it itself changes, and the understanding of the whole process changes, all these things are processual and change all the time. It's called processuality. It's a new word I've invented. The processuality of things is the opposite of the gnosis. The Gnosis is the fantasy about eternal truth. And according to Hegel, there cannot be any eternal truth. His eternal truth, the absolute knowledge, is only on the meta level. It's, it's on the meta level he can operate. He cannot operate on direct level. There's no absolute knowledge ever on direct level. That's exactly what's on the meta level. And I think the absolute knowledge in this sense is the opposite of the classic concept of gnosis, because gnosis is the concept of eternal truth can be reached. But since nothing is eternal and no truth is ever eternal, there is no eternal truth. So therefore, gnosis is unattainable. And it, it, it reveals that the people who go for gnosis are just shitheads. They're just like, they're just like, like pretentious assholes who want to be superior to other human beings, right? It's, that's all there's to it. So, so would you say that the will to transcendence is a rapport with nothingness, with, with the non-existence of nothing? The will to transcendence is the will to die for the good cause so the good cause can survive you. Mm. This is very soldier soul. These are the men today who are frustrated there's no war. These are the men who gladly go out and kill themselves and become kamikaze pilots if the job offer was there, right? So these are people who are more than willing to die for the good cause and let the cause survive them, which the priests do not actually Priests are very much in sync with death all the time, try to prolong their own lives and keep their priestly duties. But so there the priest... you have, again, Alexander, you have the two, two aspects. You have the sacrifice, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, yeah. You have, and you have the uh, battle with chaos again. Yeah. So... The will to intelligence is then the opposite. So if you're possessed with the will to intelligence, say you're priestly nature or archetype, that means you want to live for as long as forever because you get more and more knowledge the longer you live because you have to memorize everything you know. 
So your brain is completely obsessed with knowing more. And therefore you admire the men out there have a soldier soul who are willing to go out and die for the good cause at any given time. Die tomorrow if that's what it takes so that the good cause can survive them and thrive because they died. That's where the sacrifice comes in. So we're not all sacrificial in our, we're, we're, we're all submitted to the tribe, but we're not all sacrificial by nature. It's certain archetypes that have this obsession with being sacrificial. Mm-hmm. That's well to transcendence. Okay. It's also giving birth to babies so the babies yeah, can survive. Yeah, yeah. That is well to transcendence. Yeah. Interesting. So it's, 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 it's this moment of, it's probably related to the infinite now, right? It's probably this moment of peak of, of okay, this is it. This is where I die. But it's, it's got its back turned towards nothingness because it, it, it looks towards what it leaves back. It looks towards what it creates and it kills itself for creation. In a yeah, way. The, way, the way we talk about it is we talk about will to transcendence as phallus and then we talk about will to intelligence as the root of the phallus. Mm. The root of the phallus gives you a foundation, a ground. It picks up all of history until now to maximize knowledge so you know what you're doing. And you mm-hmm. do it skillfully, and then you do it. And the, the, conduct, the, the conduction of the act itself is the will to transcendence. Mm-hmm. This is tied to our concept of truth as an act, which is what the, the, the chief is supposed to do, the soldier is supposed to do. And mm-hmm. truth as a fact, which is what the priest strives for, which is why priests have huge libraries, create academies, schools of thought, and, and accumulate knowledge from all over the world. So you, have, you can go to a place which is a center of knowledge, which is supposed to be where the priest is. So together they, they become together they become world to power. With women, it's the same thing, but it's all tied to reproduction. So you prepare yourself for giving birth to a baby by knowing what it's like to be a good mother. That's world to intelligence. You give birth to the baby. You might even die when you give birth to the baby. In many cases, women do historically. That's world to transcendence. And then the baby is there, and you're there to nurture the baby. Uh, well, that's, that's a cool again, point. Uh, that the yeah. sacrificial sacrificial thing in women is 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 related to. Uh, it's birth itself. Whereas for men, it's, it's something else. Yeah. You, you don't die yeah. when you got in the field. But sometimes when you got in the field, the soldier, you die. If mm-hmm. Soldiers die regularly. You don't die all the time you give birth to babies. But historically speaking, one out of five women died. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's where they sacrificed themselves for something bigger than themselves, which is the baby. Therefore, the future of the tribe. It's always tied to the future. That's where you transcend yourself. And the willingness to give birth to a baby risking your own life is certainly what's not that, 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 you know, it's like if you read reports of soldiers, you know, they die so that the team, that the band can live, you know? Yeah. And so, and so they have like this moment of transcendence there. Yeah. On the field. And I, th- I think Nietzsche's mm-hmm. will to power becomes vulgar unless you look at it this way. It's just, I, you can understand why but will to power ends up both with Ayn Rand and Adolf Hitler. Right. It's, it's just uh, it, it's, it's too vulgar in Nietzsche himself. You have to split it up between the world to transcendence and the world to intelligence. The two things human beings love to do. One is to get more knowledgeable and the other one is to do heroic acts. And those mm-hmm. two things are together will to power and they're never one person. Again, the tribal poetic, they're always they're always tribal. Archetypal. It's as if the priest would create the, the would accumulate the necessary knowledge or the necessary configuration of knowledge and, yeah. and the portals which it enables towards uh, not the other realm, but like the, the cracks in the real, the way it mediates, yeah. that knowledge mediates cracks within the real such that then 
the the other guys who were going to die, they can face this master crack of the real, which is death. And they're like, okay, well, the priest told me that it's like this. Therefore, I may. Exactly. And that's what the ritual in the morning is. The priest has a flag, flag, a symbol of the tribe, bigger than you. It's bigger than your flag. And then he has a, your father's name was, your grandfather's name was, your great grandfather's name was. You come from this heritage. You represent this fucking heritage full of soldiers who are proud of themselves. And they bred and had children and died on the field. And you go, yeah, I want to be one of them. Right. That's exactly what the priest does. The priest reminds you of your history constantly. That because the priest is obsessed with the will to intelligence to then give the intelligence to the guy who has the will to transcend. Oh my God. And, and, and <clears throat> because there's many types of intelligence, uh, isn't there? There's perhaps the one that the priest is obsessed with from his own uh, experience of really wanting to know a lot of stuff. But we could also say that, you know, capitalism in itself and its processes of the market, et cetera, of technology, its advancement is a phylum of intelligence in its own right, obviously yep. interconnected with humans, but the way that it emerges, there's a certain want to it, to the material of, of to the to its materials. Um, yeah. How's that related to that's uh, the, the computers on the side of the priest? So what is going to happen now historically is that capitalism killed a lot of bullshit because capitalism forced you to put a price tag on everything you would sell, mm. right? And most things people will sell if they're poor, they'll sell everything, including mm-hmm. the kids, right? Uh, so capitalism forced us to stop talking bullshit and really put a price on something, meaning we really told people what we valued. So values became very open and transparent. Now what's happening with the internet is that it forced us to put a value on absolutely everything, including our own eyes, our own ears, our own sensory uh, input and output, et cetera. So what is happening now is that the priestly function in human history is catching up with us dramatically. And the, the, the real priest then is the internet. It, it, it forces us through the algorithms of the block, blockchains. Blockchains change you in history. You can no longer liable what happened at a certain point in time. This is a dramatic shift, historically speaking, meaning that the priestly aspect of this, the world intelligence, becomes automatic. So the machine's going to be priestly. And then it's going to catch up with us and say, okay, so what are you willing to sacrifice to achieve what you set out to do? Or rather, what your group set out to do that you eagerly want to belong to? And this uh, is where the tribal subcultures of the internet is going to explode. But th- th- there's a certain, uh, there's a distinction, right, that even you make between the, the internet as uh, just the bunch of data that hasn't been interpreted and then the human priest who go over there and tweak it because without the human no, eye to interpret no, no, these no. The, algor- the algorithm does that better than any human priest ever does. All right. The algorithms and the blockchains do that. So I see the algorithm and the blockchain, two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. And that coin is now the priest. Okay. We're making the priest automatic robotic. So the priest like us can then do other duties that are priestly, like to put people in confession chairs and do therapy with them and put them into ecstatic states and traumatic states. So they learn what life is like, or whatever we want to do or treat psychiatric disease. There's tons of shit for priests to do, but it's the priestly function that is exploding with the computer. Always remember that the computer is a priestly machine. I'm sure that you've, I'm sure that I'm not asking anything new, but could you give an example of a way in which the internet as priest has put someone's phallus in motion and made them go and sacrifice themselves? No, not sacrifices us yet, but starting tech startup companies is exactly that. Okay. <laughs> tech startup companies. <laughs> That's why I love tech startup guys. That's why I'm a mentor for tech startup guys and girls who do tech startups because they, they come to the priest and they got all these huge root of the phallus to build from to them be phallic on top of it. Yeah, but it's not just any phallus that comes out of this, of these brutes, is it? 
it's like there's there's infinite information and we select like the the person who will act out their will to transcendence maybe by creating a tech startup that will survive them they will select a little portion of data a little portion a little niche they will they will not enact the totality of the root of the phallus that is the internet they must make a, a selection no but that comes eventually we call it the world state and the global empire so eventually you tie together all the satellites around the world and you have one data flow towards one direction, it's called sensocracy. And sensocracy is, of course, how we can get a world map every morning of actually how climate change is affecting us. We're not there yet because we don't have the data points and we don't have the data. Yeah, but we, data will. Can, we but will. Data can show a, a million things. Climate change maps is one thing. Yeah, sure. So can priests. Yeah, and so that, that effort of selection of what yeah, is the yeah, thing that, That's shown. just a question of what is the preferred knowledge here. So for example, yeah. you're going you're gonna to win a battlefield, right? You, you don't want to have all the data in the world. You want to have bat- data that concerns how you yeah, win yeah. that battlefield and the yeah. weather of that day and the weapons you have and the weapons of the enemy and the context of the enemy and the network, what it looks like. And all the data that's relevant to winning that war is all you want. Yes, but that's how tech startups operate as well. There's no difference. And they fail. They fail miserably. Most of them fail and they have to try again. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what the modern death is often. That's a male. Project, yeah. <laughs> it's a death of, yeah, yeah. We, we don't want to kill the objects and the subjects. We kill the projects all the time in contemporary society. That's what we do. I love this. Because I see that in the future, the subject will become a project. And so subjectivity itself as a project is going to die many times. So that yeah. out, of, out of all of these that die, there will be a new subjectivity that comes up or new or like many. Um, and I'm still fixed. Maybe, maybe it's a little bit of my own. Uh, no, I, I, don't, I don't think a male subjectivity can be anything but a project first. So with all yeah. the guys I know who have friends, brothers, and hang out with them is to always have a shared project, like we do here. You have a shared mm-hmm. product, and then you become subject because you have a product you're involved with, meaning we're tribal poetical creatures. Product is tribal poetic, undeniably so. We do something together. Because we do this something together, we produce different subjectivities because of it. But then collide with other products, and then yep. that turns into subject. And because we uniquely have unique combo products we're involved with, each one of us, we experience that as an individuality. But in reality, it's just subjectivity itself. Subjectivity is that I'm uniquely the combo of the products I'm involved with. Which, which aligns with the idea that there's many tribes in the internet coming together and doing battle amongst themselves on, on a shared ground floor of, of all the knowledge that has ever existed. Yeah. So we don't, we're not going to talk about who was the genius that came up with this idea. We're going to say that mm-hmm. which, was the, which was the subworld or the subculture where this idea was first explored. This brings us back to like medieval, medieval art, right? I mean, that's how medieval art was created. It wasn't created by, nobody had a signature on a... <laughs> Yep. you know, on a metal evil artwork. Yeah. And so if we are to speak about selection or creation or genius, like you said, it's not about a guy or, or anything. It's about a tribe that is bound not by kin or place or race or anything like that, but shared habits of desire. So tribal poesis is really just fucking shared temperaments because out of a, from, from within Ooh. the internet as, as the complete palette of all possible information, people will gravitate towards each of its subsections based on their, sort of the way that that relates to their desire and their drive and their, their sort of internal self-relation. Yeah. To their own but also where they're being let in. As so well. you have to remember that I talk so much about nightclubs and whorehouses in my work. It's because we think that we can go anywhere we like. That's, that's over. 
that's over. Yeah. That's totally over. You can go anywhere you like and knock at the door, but you have to stand at the end of the queue. You probably never will be allowed in. That's what yeah. most of these sort of digital gate communities will look like. And the netocracy we're talking yeah. about here will certainly have moderation. They will certainly have doorkeepers and anything they do. Yeah, and me and Tom will only invite in amazing people to our, 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 our podcast, which is why you guys are here. <laughs> hey, Tom. Sure. <laughs> sure. No, but super interesting because there's now, I mentioned this to Andrew in the beginning, there's this Beatles documentary coming right out right now. I don't know if you haven't seen it, but it's super interesting, not just only because, you know, how they pluck these, you know, because of their temperaments, they pluck these songs out of thin air. But, you know, mm -hmm. they, the, 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 the best description of the significance of the Beatles is that they taught the people, you know, how to feel certain things, how to experience subjectively the world they're living in. And so that was a tribe that was so powerful that, you know, the people were actually like, okay, so how can we experience life? How can we experience our subjectivity? How can we experience creativity? And that, that's the enduring fact or aspect of that, you know? Yeah, and they were incredibly good at fusion. Yeah. What they did was they just stole from anywhere, appropriated, threw it into the mix and turned it into the Beatles. And so it's like, if you were a young man in, in the Western world, 1960s, the Beatles were always the head of the game when it came to the next big trend people wanted to explore. So if you wanted to go to India and be hippie, they went to India. They were hippies and they made music about it. Right. So it's, it's like they were walking soundtrack all the time to people's lives. That's why they became so massively huge. Yeah, yeah. But it's like somebody like Madonna did the same thing in the 1980s and 90s, but only for gays and girls. So Madonna was for gays and girls in the 80s and 90s, what the Beatles had been for straight men in the 1960s. And uh, that was also a consequence of the, of the unidirectional broadcast media, because in the age of the internet, that doesn't happen in, in the form of one personality or one band of people going out and being those leaders, those trailblazers that we get to mimic like they are these almost gods. No, it's going to happen with well, many different tribes all at once. Way, like... nah, for many different tribes all at once, I'd say. And, yeah, then with the, and then with the band, then with the band, couldn't do it anymore. Like after Kurt Cobain, the whole idea that a band could be role models for a generation disappeared. Yeah. It became yeah. boy bands and boy bands pretended to be the Beatles performing only for young girls. So it's like right. you, you took all the historical context out mm -hmm. of the Beatles and just kept one little thing. It's like, oh, young girls scream and want to get laid by these guys because they're popular with the other guys. And that's the boy band. The boy band pretends to be popular with men, although it isn't. It's only there for 14 year old girls to scream at. And it ends up with K-pop which is like the mimicry of the mimicry of the mimicry of the mimicry at the very, very end. There's no life left to it at all. You get to that point. It was a copy of a tribe because yeah, the Beatles were an original tribe. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. There's mi yeah. millions of copies. That's, that's what happens after something original arrives. Then oh, no, and zillions and zillions of copies, yeah. right? It just keeps yeah, and copying now, and, and copying and copying. And now, of course, hip hop has gone down the same route. So yeah. hip hop either had to be qualitatively better, like Drake did, for example, to keep it alive as, a, as an artistic expression without having any followers at all, except those about the records, because the records are dead. And the other one was the mimicry of the mimicry of the mimicry of the original hip hop thugster, so to speak. Like, And after it, Tupac died, that died as well. That's why hip hop is dead. Because so it's literally Drake dead. Is, it's, it's a dead art book. form today. Yeah, it, it ended with Drake in the sort of going towards jazz, right? And that's it. There's nothing else left. There's nothing else left. But yeah, that, that's, hey, hey, Pop, that's the next nothing. question. What's hey, next? I mean, is there Pop, another thing? Or, or we filled no it up. Thing? No, we filled it up with pop music because music cannot communicate symbolic order any longer. It can only yeah. accompany our lifestyle. We're back at the 1940s. 
When you went to a restaurant, there was an orchestra, there was a singer, you didn't know who she was. There was a conductor, you didn't know who it was. They just played and they accompanied you. So it's called mm. sonic wallpaper. And that's yeah. what music is today. That's, that's what music, know, uh, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so music yeah. cannot be anything but pop music any longer. It's nothing but pop music these days. So if you take that paradigm of, of, of music as wallpaper, like Eric, Eric Satie said, and if you take that and you call it like, uh, like Sloterdijk called the sonic top or, or the bit, the function of being the, the soundtrack for your life from the sound perspective, and yeah. then you have wallpaper for the space of your head. If you apply this mentality to the whole environment of spatial computing, uh, you, can, you can become the absolute tyrant. It's, it's like Billie Eilish. Billie Eilish was like cool for like three weeks. And then she made an excuse to the woke mob about something she said. And you knew she wasn't John Lennon at all. John Lennon proclaimed that he was bigger than Jesus, right? There was nothing there at all about Billie Eilish. She was just another pop star. Another right. pop star, nothing else. She's nothing but a flaky pop star. Nothing else at all. Yeah, no integrity is. there at all. Nothing. Hollywood is more than that. 